Welcome to Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. I'm David Helvarg, and today I'll be talking with Ian Urbina, prize-winning New York Times reporter turned author. Ian's eight-part series, The Outlaw Ocean, has been expanded into a best-selling book and global project. I'm starting the first full episode of Rising Tide with a journalist based on my own belief that the only ocean resource not fully exploited is good stories. Everywhere I looked, there were... um stories about the ocean but not so much about um the, the people. people of the yeah. ocean yeah now, this is what i often talk about the blue beat you know the mm-hmm. the idea that the only resource not fully exploited in the ocean is good stories mm-hmm. that's right yeah and there are a lot of them I and, mean, and so get, you but... you went to the new york times and they immediately said oh what a great idea <laughs> ian <laughs> quite to the contrary no it took many years and many pitches at editors to um find the right one but, uh, you know, I, so as an investigative reporter, I typically had a meeting once a year where my editor at that time would say, you know, what's your, what do you have uh, on stock for a next project? And uh, I usually would bring this one out. And um, finally, I, I had an editor who had worked on ports before. This is an editor named Rebecca Corbett. She's David Simon's editor at um, the Baltimore Sun, mm-hmm. David Simon, the creator of The Wire. Um, and she had wa- she had overseen Pulitzer Prize winning series about shipbreaking in, uh, in that the Baltimore Sun ran. So she knew a little bit about the space and kind of just how rich it was. And I think partially Sh- for that shipbreaking reason, literally being taking apart giant tankers and yeah. uh, and container ships by hand on right. the shores, uh, the sandy yeah. shores of Bangladesh and India. Yep, yep. And just sort of uh, the series was looking at um, uh, the sort of egregious labor conditions of, of that work and environmental hazards also involved in it. And, um, so needless to say, she kind of got it from the get go and, um, said, yeah, why don't you, uh, um, sort of write up a story list of what you might tackle. And she initially said, you know, uh, sure, but let's not focus on the fish. Let's really focus on, on the people. And then um, we'll back our way into the environmental story. And at first I thought that was a terrible idea. Um, I didn't really understand how you could do it, but but um, quickly I realized it was the right way to go about it. So when did you uh, start? You sort of ran in parallel in terms of the early things you discovered about slavery at sea mm-hmm. and, and parallel investigation that seemed to go on get underway around the same time it was not a secret that uh, the problem of sea slavery um i was in thailand same time as the team from associated press were and where they did amazing reporting they and went deep you know on the topic Mm. of sea slavery i was more trying to go wide you know and broad uh and look at a variety of different things not just sea slavery but you know murder caught on camera and abuse of stowaways and dumping of oil and repo men who steal ships and, you know, kind of uh, uh, the, the more the broad um, diversity of, uh, of characters out there to make a larger point about the lack of governance. So um, I, I called it Blue Frontier, and you're talking about the wild frontier, the lack the of The watery governance. wild left yeah. west, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I... Uh, the first story that the paper wanted me to tackle um, in initially it was going to be a three-part series, and mm. the first of those three was we were going to actually publish them all sort of in consecutive days. So I'd have to write and report them all out, you know, for for many months beforehand and get them all prepped. And uh, the first one was uh, about sea slavery, and that was in Thailand. And just um, my hope was to look at um, the the most acute 
um, versions of sea slaver were on these um, transshipment um, uh, sort of uh, distant water vessels where um, these migrant uh, trafficked uh, workers tended to stay much longer periods and uh, the cases were more acute. Um, but they're hardships to get out to because they're really far. Um, and But once you get on the water, it's like getting to the front lines. You actually found captains who let you stay aboard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, initially, it took a while, a couple weeks of whining and dining captains. And, and initially, the thought was, um, I had a, Adam Dean, a British photographer, and I were thinking we could convince one captain to take us all the way out, and that didn't really pan out. Um, so then we were just trying to convince ca- a captain to take us 50 miles out and then talk our way onto a next vessel, and he would take us 50 more out. And um, that finally worked, sort of hopscotching our way on, on and uh, looking for the right kind of vessel. And the one that we ended up profiling, even as we approached, it was really obvious that, that was this was going to be a sort of perfect poster child because it was just a really... Um, crowded, run-down vessel. You could tell the crew was all Cambodian, 40 crew and five Thai officers, and they'd been out at sea for quite a while. And, uh, um, you know, there, you could see rats even approaching, you know, as we, we were approaching the vessel. that was just overrun with um, vermin. And so I thought, okay, this is this is home. <laughs> you know, right. like, ah, my panacea. <laughs> and for days it was, and you, you actually, what, what struck with me is... Uh, you're describing sleeping and what you realized was essentially the venting port for the diesel engine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, on one ship, um, uh, I had wanted to go look at, um, where these guys bed at night and sort of the only way you could get down there was on your hands and knees and sort of crawl down this cavern. And, um, uh, the, the deeper I went, the hotter it got and the, the more lightheaded I got and the louder it got. And, uh, along the hallway, you know, sort of on either side were these cubbies, you know, kind of the size of a coffin that the men, um, were clearly sleeping in. Uh, they were at work when I was doing this. And I realized soon that this was actually the, the engine room didn't have proper ventilation, but instead was essentially using that hallway as the um uh the smokestack uh and so these guys were literally breathing in a, bunker yeah fuel. sleeping in a, in a in a exhaust pipe so you know just uh the you know it all sums up to pretty amazingly brutal working conditions um and i'm shocked in you i was we were talking before i just got back a month ago from an um, a patrol off the coast of the Gambia, and the goal there was to uh, board and um, uh, inspect uh, Chinese uh, fishing vessels. And um, we we boarded and arrested three. And um, uh, you know the the these were mostly Senegalese and Sierra Leoneans who were on these ships working for the Chinese. Working for the Chinese and. Um, one ship in particular where the men were sleeping was literally a large metal box. You know, it was, uh, I couldn't believe it. You know, it had no windows. Um, uh, you know, uh, it had a steel plate that had been cut in, in a metal wall and that was the entry point. And then when you wanted to close it, you had to put a latch through it, but there was no ceiling to it. And, um, um, 
ships and it was on the level of the deck. So when water came on deck, it would go right into this room and there are mattresses, foam mattresses that lined the space and a power cord and a power strip in there. So add it all up, you've got, you know, an oven that catches fire real quick. And right, and how many men were sleeping in there? There were eight men in a space that should handle two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was like the, the stuff you remember from history, slave pictures and history books. So when the Chinese masters just thought this was fine. Yeah, I mean, just the desperation, you know, uh, is so acute that um, they, yeah, they they just uh, shrug it off. You know, when you're talking about terrorism, the the motivation is that it may affect us, right, voters. Um, When you're talking about the ocean or you're talking about the fate of, you know, kind of third world or developing world, deckhands, uh, it feels very far from us. It's not in reality. You know, the oceans affect our life directly, but um, it feels very removed from us, and so there's much less urgency from the public. What was sort of most surprising out there? Mm. I mean, you knew it was there, but... I mean, there, there are a bunch of answers to that. One is um, uh, floating armories, you know, kind of... Um, so post-2008, height of Somali piracy, there was... Uh, um, the emergence of the private maritime security industry. So these are, you know, kind of armed guys who are hired to um, board mostly merchant vessels as they head through dangerous neighborhoods, you know. And um, usually they're picked up at the front end of a dangerous patch and then they're dropped off on the other end. Um, so there was a, an unusual historical moment in the normalization of the arming of merchant vessels in that fashion on the one hand. On the other hand, post 9-11, um, there was a heightened um, fear in countries and in their waters about armed guys coming in their waters. Right. And so that spelled a problem because if you were going to have armed guys protecting your cargo, what did you do with them so that, you know, before you have to come into the port? And so you so put them back on these armory ships. You put them on these, yeah, these, these floating armories emerge and they sit, part, you know, anchored at the 13-mile mark or just outside of national waters uh, on the high seas. And you drop those guys off there. And these armories are, you know, one part weapons depot, one part bunkhouse. And they have, you know, 40, 50, 60 guys who are waiting for their next deployment and sort of stuck there. Sort of and salt water, huge, black water. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and so just the existence of these um, vessels and what life is like on there and who are these guys that work this type of um, job. And that, that was a perfect example of just, you know, um, this weird other world. They're out there reading a lot of Anna Nin and other classic feminist literature. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Few people do what you've done with the Outlaw Ocean, which is just kind of express the the strangeness strangeness and lawlessness um even the way we get 90 percent of our goods through uh you know global shipping most of these ships are under flags of convenience mm-hmm. monrovia and panama don't actually own tens of thousands of vessels but they appear to be because that gives a certain legal freedom and tax exemption and mm-hmm. ability to mm-hmm. dump waste and all the kind of outlaw aspects that you talk about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so I imagine the book's doing really well. Mm. Yeah, I think I think it is actually. I'm a bit surprised mm. <laughs> to be honest because it's um, it's a dark topic. There's a lot of really depressing stuff in there. It's a long read. Um, 
And as you well know... No, 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 no. Even though I haven't read it yet, I'm going to say it's a fast read. It's engaging. It's powerful. Well, no, people are saying it is, and I'll believe them because it feels good. But um, I had no idea whether it would uh, do well or not, but it seems to be doing well. I think the experience of going out there is both um, somewhat akin to space travel and time travel. Space travel in the sense that you're sort of climbing into this spaceship, right, that Mm. is a a fishing vessel or whatever it is and you're trapped there you know and you're you're moving through a fairly desolate sometimes perilous place that you can't really um step onto um and uh you're going long distances to somewhat unknown places um and time travel in the sense that you're witnessing things that i at least thought had disappeared and were now just the stuff of history books, slavery and whaling and piracy and, you know, private or, you know, buccaneers and, you know, kind of, um, yeah. So I just, I just think, um, yeah, it is really, uh, um, uh, an eye opening, um, frontier. How many days at sea did you do? Mm -hmm. Not just on the book, but also on the series that led to the book. You think? Uh, so the book took about five years to report, and I'd say maybe two years of that five, all told, was at sea. So this book is out now, and uh, soon will be in paperback. And yeah. what's the full title? It's, it's... Uh, The Outlaw Ocean Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. Blue Frontier, I like it. Blue Frontier is better than beer. For one, our foam is saltier. For over 15 years, we've been reporting on the problems facing our public seas and empowering citizens to take action to protect our ocean communities. Go to www.bluefront.org to learn more. Hi, my name's Elise Landon. I live on the beach in San Diego. I'm the first listener to subscribe to Rising Tide. Special thanks to Blue Frontier, Studio K May, and Ocean Conservation Research for making Rising Tide possible. Hope you've enjoyed Blue Frontier's Rising Tide Ocean podcast. Tune in next time for my interview with ghost netbuster Mary Crawley. Mary's the first person to remove over 40 tons of plastic debris from the high seas and is going after the next 400 tons this summer. Plus, we'll hear more of my interview with Inland Ocean Coalition founder Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Don't forget to tell your friends about Rising Tide and also subscribe yourself wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, let's end today's episode with our theme music from singer-songwriter Ethan Kenfark. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, Salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.